Thank you, Terry Choir, Instrumentalist Praise Band, all of you bringing it once again today. Thank you. Good, we did pay our power bill. I saw those lights coming up. They knew just when, right? They're laughing back there. That's great. Thank you, guys. They do such a great job even trying to get some of the logistics for a party we're having later on, that uh, football game, I think it's tonight, and Scott, some of those folks, giving extra special attention. Thank you, as is the normal thing around here, go above and beyond. Welcome, members and guests. Speaking of that, if you're not a part of a Life Journey group, you're invited to one of the many Life Journey group parties taking place tonight, the fellowships all through our city, including a big one here for our students. They have that big screen in there, and they'll be uh, rolling and blowing in there. So look for that. Thank you for hosting that. We use it in our church, if you're one of our guests, to make sure if there's people in our city may not be connected to a church or even to the Lord, they have an opportunity to uh, just come out there and have a bunch of food and some fun and see that we're mostly normal, mostly, you know, partially normal. Anyway, well, half crazy. But anyway, thank you. Those in our simulcast, thank you. Whether you're listening from the state of Florida, the state of Texas, no matter where you are, or across the sea, blessed that you are here watching on our simulcast today. Um, everything you wanted to know about prayer, Jesus told us in the Bible. Everything you wanted to know about Bubbaville, Bubba wrote about in his book. All you wanted to know about Bubbaville, I'll just take a few excerpts I think may bless you today. Everything you want to know about Bubbaville. It says here, folks in Bubbaville now go to some movies in groups of 18 or more. What's that about? Oh, here it is. They were told 17 and under, not admitted. It's Bubbaville, right? It says here, according to Bubba and everything you want to know about Bubbaville, the minimum drinking age in Bubbaville has been raised to 32. It says it seems they want to keep alcohol out of high schools. (laughs) That's bad. I just read them as he wrote them, right? Also, uh, how can you tell if a Bubbaville man is married? That's a pretty good question. Sometimes folks want to know. And here's his answer. There's dry tobacco spit on both sides of his pickup truck. <laughs> nice. you, Brian, you got that. That's good. There's many more, but we'll only do one more since sometimes there's more than you can bear. Everything you wanted to know about Bubbaville. Okay, here it is. Uh, well, finally something civic. Bubbaville has a new $3 million town lottery. And you thought they didn't have money there. It says the winner gets $3 a year for a million years. <laughs> well, everything you wanted to know about Bubbaville is just kind of, well, dumber than a brick, I guess. But everything you want to know about prayer is found in the Word of God, as I said a few moments ago, and there's no, there's no more of a better concision of that than when Jesus speaks in this parable in Luke chapter 11. Probably, if I were to point to several different passages in the Bible that have been misinterpreted, misunderstood, misquoted, I probably would, this would be one of the leading passages. It was a little over a month ago, I was surfing through the different stations on my radio in my car, I was heading over to one of the hospitals, 
and had this station on. This pastor was preaching from the Luke 11 passage and more or less telling people that if you will just ask, seek, and knock, you'll get what you want. And so I'm listening to this thing and eventually get there and you get in the parking area and the sound kind of goes out. But basically I thought, wow, there's going to be a lot of disappointed people and a lot of people that have missed the essence of what Jesus is talking about. So today, what we're going to look at is this dynamic of Jesus recalibrating his followers' understanding of prayer. Because back then, just like today, there are people who need a recalibration to understand what prayer is all about. If you listen today, it may just change how you pray. It may change what you ask for. It may give you some deeper understanding to why people have gone to a health and wealth mentality. Ask, seek, knock, and it's yours. There's the formula. So let's look at it biblically and see what this is talking about. First of all, we have three friends in this parable. We have a traveling friend. How many of you had someone that came to visit you over the Christmas holidays? Let me see your hands. Good. How many went to go see someone over the Christmas holidays? Then you get it. This person is a traveling friend. There's another person that's called a persistent friend. How many of you have a persistent friend? I see some hands going up. You get, thank you, young man, right there. A persistent friend. This traveler happens to go to the persistent friend's home. And some of you may relate to this. How many of you have an annoyed friend? Because that's the third person in this parable. We have a traveling friend, a persistent friend, and we have an annoyed friend. So today we're going to look at this and try to see it in the context, perhaps differently than you've ever seen it before. What is Jesus saying in this short but very, very meaty parable. Start in verse 6 of Luke 11. The parable actually starts in verse 5, but we're going to verse 6 first. We'll go to verse 5 in our next passage. But I'm just setting the scene for this traveling friend. The Word of God says in Luke 11:6, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Now, for us today, watch this. How many of you have some food in your pantry or your refrigerator? Just raise your hand. Most everybody. Even some of these university students, if they have a little refrigerator, right, they're going like that. They probably have something, right? Something. There's always some delicious chips to dip in something somewhere. Some cookies, some crackers. I happen to believe I need to support the ice cream industry. I enjoy ice cream. There's always something in someone's house, right? But you see, to understand this parable, you have to go back in time. I mean, really go back and think about the protocol of Eastern culture. And in Eastern culture, for someone to come to your home, especially someone that's been traveling, there's some set things that have been put in place. So let's look. Because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Now, there's some rules if a traveler came to your home, particularly any traveler but a friend. First of all, they get to spend the night. They get to stay with you. Now, that's not a problem here. Some of you, perhaps, 
over Christmas. We're sleeping on a sofa somewhere or on a, one of those blow-up mattresses on the floor or maybe just on a quilt on the floor, right? There's a, and maybe you had some more people come and they may even put the kiddos in one room and put out a quilt or two and they're all sleeping on that. Having a great time, right? But in that day and time, there was an obligation. You, this person's been there. They couldn't go to the, you know, the Motel 6 where Tom Bodette said, we'll leave the light on for you. There was no light. No, nor is there a Motel 6. So you went to a friend's house. He knocks on the door and he's a place to sleep, not a problem. Some food, well, he didn't take out his cell phone and call Domino's, right? Send over two pizzas. This guy is hungry. He hadn't eaten since yesterday. He's been on the road. There's no place to go. There's no refrigerator to look in. And many households, not all, would just make enough bread for the day. When the food got gone, it was gone. Wasn't like they were going to store it and say, it'll be good in the refrigerator for a week. Listen, even the rule in Ireland, if you have to take it out and smell it, if the question, smell it and see if it's good. It's already no good. I don't have to smell it, right? In that day and time before refrigeration and all of that, it was truly day to day. We don't, we can't even understand that. Well, maybe some of these college students can sometimes it's day to day. I can relate to that. So we have a friend, but listen, I have nothing to set before him. When they're looking at Jesus as he's talking about this, they almost probably see lobsters coming out of his ears. What? His friend is there and I have nothing to give him. I have no food for this guy. I have breached Eastern culture and protocol. This is awful. How awful is it? It's so awful that he goes to his friend to get something. And he's called the persistent friend. Now I want to stop here for a moment because we started in verse 6 because I wanted to paint part of the dilemma of what's taking place. The traveling person goes to the persistent friend's home. Once again, he's got a place to sleep, but there's nothing to eat there. Today's message, Jesus recalibrates his followers' understanding of prayer. I've got a little something here called a pedometer. This one's around 80 years old. How many of you in this room have a Fitbit? Let me just put you... Right? Somebody said, what's a Fitbit? Right? If you see people, it looks like something on their arm, like a wristwatch. And maybe you've been in a restaurant or a store and you're looking at their watch and say, what time? I wonder what time's on there. Wow, it's 12,423. It's gotten late. That's how many steps. It measures how many steps you take during the day. It'll beep and give you different warnings if you've been stationary for a while. And so a lot of people use those to track their life, to get some good health, keep their heart going, and spend the rest of their money for the extra three months you'll live in an assisted living place until you run out of it, right? <laughs> so anyway, but it's good. It's good daily health. It's just a good thing. It's a good thing to do. That's what they are. And they do all kinds of things. They do more things than I can imagine. But 80-plus years ago, the German people had something called a pedometer. Here's what it looks like. kind of looks like a stopwatch or a pocket watch, doesn't it? It's 
pretty cool. And I mean, talk about precision people, the Swiss, the Germans, right? German engineering, the Swiss engineering. It's pretty cool. And it comes with instructions. Now, remember, it's from Germany, right? And so they've made this for the export market. And so, they, by the way, let me just say before I read, they do a way better job translating from German to English than I would ever do from English to German. Let me just say that. But in a day and time, if I was selling something, I would want to have everything correct. I wouldn't want to say, turn the knob, K-N-O-P, the knob, that's spelled on here, and several other words, but which is not a big deal. That's not the point of this. What it does say, though, that is very Germanic in nature If you've measured how far the distance you're going and this doesn't read properly, you were not correct. (laughs) You were not correct. Redo it again. And probably you had to play with this thing a number of times in order to really get and calibrate how far you would go. Well, knowing your pastor, I thought to myself, I'm going to see how accurate this could be. And... Like me, many of you belong to that high-priced $10 a month health club. That, by the way, gives us free pizza one time a month. I thought, that's genius. I thought at first, how can they afford to do it? But everyone that does it said, man, I better get back next week and keep joining up this thing. But I went there, and on on an elliptical, I I do four miles. Not a big deal. It's four miles. You're stationary, and uh, it's just a good thing. I just have kept it up, not because I'm so noble or whatever. Because I like to eat. That's why. You know that, Jason. Exactly. That's why we do it. I put this on there. I did my four miles. I had this exactly where they say to do it. I calibrated it like they say. And amazingly, I would have been really frustrated having just worked up that sweat and done all that. I'd only gone one and three quarter miles. Right? I thought to myself, this is going to get tested against that wall. But, But... In good German fashion, I also like the last part of the instructions that are on here. It says, do not make the pedometer to pieces, which means don't take it apart. And it was probably translated in a very wooden manner, do not make the pedometer to pieces. Well, it almost became pieces on the wall there when I saw how it was registering, but it's not that thing's fault. And why am I saying that? If it's not calibrated properly, you'll not get the correct answer. You'll not get the correct information. And why today's message is talking about recalibrating our understanding of prayer is because that's what Jesus does in this very message. And it's why perhaps it's so misused to say the wrong thing as opposed to the right thing. So what is it saying? So we're going to go from the traveling friend. He gets there at midnight with that presupposes he's probably traveled all day. He's probably come far. There's no places to eat along the way. He's tired. He's hungry. He goes to his friend, the persistent friend. It says, then he said to them, as Jesus starts the parable, suppose one of you, Jesus brings all of us right in it. Suppose one of you has a friend. He goes to him at midnight. How many of you were asleep before midnight last night? Let me see your hand. How many are asleep right now? Let me see your hand. About 14. <laughs> Most of us. But once you get in bed, particularly when it's colder out, I mean, doesn't your bed and that blanket and that quilt pillow become like a cocoon, doesn't it? 
It's hard some days to get out of that bed. I swear it grabs me. It wants me to stay. But in this day and time, he has someone, his friend comes to him at midnight. Jesus is painting the most out there kind of a thing that could happen, right? So this friend, this traveler we talk about, and he says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. So the persistent friend has a traveler that comes. He knows he's got no food. There's not going to wake up and say, turn on the light, let's make something for you. There's nothing. So probably, since it says, and he said to them, one of you has a friend, he goes at midnight and says, friend. So he goes to his aggravated friend, and perhaps he's a next-door neighbor. He's a friend. He knows them. He knows sometimes they make more than just one batch of bread for whatever reason. But that's not the point of it. The point is that he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. So we can get this idea of, suppose uh, one of you has a friend. How many of you have friends out there? Now, let me qualify some things. (laughs) There's basically three categories of people that are on the earth in that category. One is called an acquaintance. If you break down on I-85, 2.30 in the morning, and it's raining, and you don't have your jack with you, and your car has a flat tire to boot, do you call your acquaintance up at 2.30 in the morning for that? Maybe you may call, if nothing happens, the next day and say, can you meet me there after work tomorrow and get it? There's another category of person called, well, a casual friend. A casual friend. That person, maybe you'll call, you, you know them a little bit better, you, you converse and all that. Maybe you'd call them 7.30 in the morning, see if you can get them before they're heading to the office or whatever, if they could help you. But there's another category called a close friend. That person, you call up, it's 2.30. So-and-so, I can't believe it, I'm on 85 between Burlington and Graham, I just got a flat, the car, blah, blah, blah. Can you come and help me? I don't even have a jack. Hang on, I'll be there in 30 minutes. If you have one of those, when we have the time of response, come and pray to Solomon. God, thank you for a friend like that. And some of you have friends like that. And I would do that for someone. Some would do that for me. But just in case you're wondering what I call an acquaintance, I'm acquainted with so many of you. Don't worry about that. Call at 2.30 in the morning, okay? (laughs) And touche. (laughs) Okay? So, we have this guy, and they're probably good friends. He goes to his friend. And the people are getting this because it's Eastern culture. He says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Lend me. They didn't say, give me. And he goes at midnight. Well, let's look at where he's going to. Because he's going to his house, the Bible says. Now, some of us have an understanding of a house. Some of us think we had it pretty rough. I know you've heard me say before, we, I, we grew up on a turn-of-the-century Brownstone in Brooklyn, New York. Um, my great-grandfather, my great-aunt lived with us. There was 10 of us in that house. And how many bathrooms did we have? Let me see. One, two, three. No, one. One with an old iron tub in it with the clawfoot tub. All that was was kind of like 
an animal feeding trough after the Geratelli's bathed in that thing. It just didn't look good. But that's what we had. It was fine. If you go on certain parts of our city, you can see the, the post-war houses after World War II. They were like small two-one bedroom houses. You walk in and you walk out in three steps, right? There's, and and not, not a put-down to just smaller. But let's look at a typical biblical one-room house in Jesus' day. There's the whole thing. Here's the living room, dining room, family room, library, kitchen, everything. There were one-room houses. Sometimes you'd have a door from upstairs or you could go to the roof up there. Sometimes they were built a little bit lower in the ground. But I'm showing you this because you have to have an idea of what these people are thinking. What are they seeing? Well, this man, it says, well, tells us something about it in the passage. He says he goes to him at midnight. That's a hard time. And here's what happens in that day and time. Bring that photo back for just a moment. Thank you. Usually there's a raised place, slightly raised in the floor of these one-room houses. And there's some kind of a fire or heating source. It's for cooking, but also for heating. So when it's time for bedtime, one got out their mats, they filled with some type of agrarian substance and put on the, on the floor, that very warm floor you can see in there, right? And they would get around that fire, or as close as they could to that, and everyone had their mat, and they would bed down for the night. They're not all in the same bed. They all had different mats, but they're not saying, you kids go to your bedroom. We're going to stay up late and watch the whatever on the news. They're all, they're going out that you're not going to burn a bunch of oil at night. It's a waste of money. You go to sleep, and it's midnight. They've been sleeping here. They're inside of this house. Maybe they have something covering them, maybe their own cloak, and they're feeling warm. You don't want to get up because even at night when the sun goes down, sleeping in these very, very nice warm walls, they probably get, who knows how cold they get, right? And the cold floor, it's cold. So you have this picture, you have this scene where perhaps you have a mom and dad, two, three, four, five children, all huddled around this place to stay warm, asleep. Very different than we have today, right? So bring up the passage. Next one, thank you. It says in this next part, which talks about the annoyed friend, that something happens. It says, then the one inside, in verses 7 and 8, answers. What's the first word? Don't. It's a command. Don't bother me. The door is already locked, excuse number one. Isn't that typical sometimes how people can treat it? There's an excuse already. The door is locked. My children are with me in bed, which I describe what that is. It's not like there's a big four-poster bed and they're all huddled in that thing. They've got all their mats out there. I can't get up and give you anything. So he's laying it out. He's telling the truth, but he's just laying it out. The door is locked. My kids now with me in bed. We're all asleep here. Don't bother me. Or, loosely translated, stop bothering me. I tell you, Jesus says, I can't get up and give you anything. What part, any part of that unclear? No translation either there is there. I can't get up and give you anything. Now what that already tells me, think about it. They've got something to give. He didn't say we're out of bread, did he? Didn't say I can't give you something and I can't give you anything. Ha ha, 
you have something, right? So notice, I tell you, Jesus said, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. And they are, they're friends. Yet, because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. What is Jesus saying? What's going on here? Well, bring up that next slide quickly. We'll look at some of these as we go through this. Don't bother me. He already said, leave. Stop it. He says, the door's already locked. Another excuse. He says, my children are with me in bed. They're true, but what? The persistent friend says, I know you got something because I can't give you anything. He didn't say he didn't have anything. He said, I can't give you anything. Because I'm going to disturb the kids. I'm going to have to get out of my mat. I'm going to have to un- unlock the door, pull up that piece of wood or wherever they had it latched, make noise, wake everybody up, try and find this in the night. It's going to make, it's going to make, it's going to be a hassle. Don't bother me. Now, this resounding no for bread, I can't get up and give you anything, is pretty remarkable. Because at that point, he's not getting anything. And Jesus goes on to say, though he will not get up and give him bread because he's his friend. I know you're my friend. I'm not getting up. I'm not going to get up. But something crazy happens. Yet because of the man's boldness, it's a great word in the Greek language, it has more to do with shamelessness or audacity. Okay? That's... The audacity of that person to whatever, fill in the blank. Ask me to buy them a new car or whatever. The audacity, of, it's, it's like a daringness. That's what Jesus is saying. There's shamelessness. He, he's, he's not ashamed to make a nuisance of himself. So, as scholars have looked at that and say, yeah, that, that word, it is talking about that, making a nuisance of himself and all of that. I'm ashamed to do that. He had the audacity to ask a really, really bold request. Think about it. There you are. And the people listening are getting this thing. And it's hard to know who they're probably siding with at this point. Because they're saying, wait, but yeah, but this guy's going to break all of our cultural rules. And go back with nothing and say... I'm sorry, I know you're starved, you haven't had any need. I have nothing for you. In fact, I couldn't even count on my friend to get me something. I got nothing. Absolute, we don't get it, but I can tell you in that culture, that was so significant. So significant. And so, we see this bold request. And let's look at the wrong point of the parable. Remember, Jesus is recalibrating his followers' understanding of prayer. The wrong part of the parable is this. God has to be annoyed into answering our request. Now, some of you get this because you've been in line in some of the food stores and other stores in our city. You're two or three people behind, perhaps a parent and a child or two. Can I have this gum? No. Can I have this gum? No. Can I have this gum? No. Will you buy me this gum? No. Why can't I have the gum? You can't. Don't say that one more time, Billy. I'm going to count to ten. If you know, one more time, you're going to get a spanking. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Can I have this gum? I told you not to ask me that. When we get home, you're going to get it. Okay. 
can I have this gum? And then, um, I've developed a really good prayer life in many lines in our city. God has helped me. And so, so that's like God. You see, if you bug God enough, you'll get your request. Because finally he gets so annoyed with you, he's, I don't want to hear from you anymore, just take it. Let me ask you something. Does that sound like God? Thank you. <laughs> that was from a person that asked for gum in the line, right? No. But what's the correct point of the parable? If Jesus is recalibrating our understanding of prayer, what is the correct point of this parable? It's boiled down and distilled down to its finest essence. If a, a mere annoyed and inconvenienced human being, think about it. He's annoyed and he's inconvenienced, isn't he? If that person will honor the request from a persistent friend, then we are assured that our merciful, omnipotent, omniscient, loving Father will supply our needs when we bring them before Him. If a fallen human being that doesn't even want to get up, that's annoyed with you, maybe disappointed with you, that has got to this point, I'm so inconvenienced, but if a mere human like that will give you what you want, or actually, I used that word on purpose. Did you catch it? Give you what what? There's no want in this thing. There's a need. See, Jesus is teaching several different things here. He didn't say some flatbread with some cheese on it, tomato sauce, some pepperoni. I think I invented pizza. He just wants something to eat. And probably he's just, the story, the people knew he was asking for some flatbread. But it was a need. It was a need. Uh, one lesson from that. God promises to supply all of our needs, not all of our wants. Amen? He says that this guy, the guy I'm just telling you about, the one you were listening to the story and you got pulled into it because many of you have had a traveler come. Many have come at different times. And he's going to his friend to ask him this. If a mere human, fallen human being will do that. How much more so will your heavenly, not your heavenly friend, your heavenly father. Wow. Now, let's see what happens because our heavenly father is much greater than any annoyed friend. And Luke uh, 11, 9, and 10, it says, get this. Jesus tells us the people have been listening. It's probably blown them out of the water, right? So I say to you, and it's used here in an ongoing sense, the ask, the seek, and the knock are woodenly translated, asking, seeking, and knocking. But it says ask, seeks, and knock, okay? So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And who seeks, finds. And him who knocks, the door will be opened. And so you hear it preached there. Just keep on doing it. I don't know what happened. I don't know how it unlocks God, but it finally unlocks him because he's bugged like the guy in the parable that finally gets up and does it. The problem is that's inconsistent with the nature of the attributes and the essence of a holy, merciful, loving God. So that's not it. We already looked at it. That's not it. So, but what is it? What is it? 
What must this mean? How are we to pray? Basically, what Jesus is saying by asking and seeking and knocking, we're showing God our sincerity in the prayer. In a day and time that lacks sincerity in prayer, Jesus is saying, I'm looking for you to be sincere in your prayer. When they had people standing on street corners with phylacteries filled with scripture on their head or on their arm to be seen of men in sincere prayer or praying before the temple to give in their offering, God, thank you, I can give all this money to you. This is people pray today. It's insincere prayer. And Jesus is giving an exhortation for sincere prayer because you'll notice how the commands become more aggressive. Ask, seek, knock. There's a progression there, isn't there? So what is that about? What is Jesus saying? What is he telling us? Well, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Asking. Basically, Jesus is letting us know God expects us to come before him with our, what's the next word? Needs. Not our want. But I want to go. It's good for me. I like it. I swallow it. Whatever. God expects us to come before him with our needs. But, see, that's all couched with this. Because I have to get the me of me out of the equation. Because I'm talking to holy God, not some friend that I can maybe fool or annoy you to giving me something. I'm talking to the merciful, holy, righteous, omnipotent God. So we come because he's promised to supply all of our needs, not our wants. We have to come with the right motives. And you see, that begins to change. It begins to recalibrate what we pray about. God, are these my desires or are they your desires? Secondly, he wants us to have genuine needs that we go to him. Now, we can take other things to him. But Jesus, as he promised to supply all of our needs, need to be genuine needs. God, I would like to have another mirror on the other side of my Ferrari. I saw one today that had that. I like the other one. Can I have that? Would you answer that today for me, please? Thank you. Genuine needs. Now, I used one that was kind of ludicrous, but sometimes we may think our need is for the person, the other thing, the other job, the other class, the other whatever it is, fill in the blank. Well, we may think it's a need, but right here at Motives, we get to see what is this about. Is this about God's will or my will? Is it about God's desire or my desires? And that's why I said right here, is it God's will? Is it God's will? Because an annoyed person may give you something. The Heavenly Father will give you what is best for me and for you, won't he? He'll give us what is best. And if you believe the nature, essence, attributes of God, the holy God that suffered and bled and died for the sins of the world on the cross, shed his blood, placed in the tomb, rose three days later because he loved us. When you believe in that God that spoke in a voidless nothingness, all that we see and have, the trees, the flowers, a hand, everything that surrounds us, that God, and we come before him, he's not poor, he's not struggling to hear you, He hears, he knows, and he will take care of our needs. So our asking, God expects us to come before him with our needs. We stay connected. However, there's something else. Seeking. 
What is seeking? Seeking is asking with actions. It's another step. I remember some days I didn't have all my needs. One of them, you've probably known me long enough to know, is food. I enjoy that. It's part of our culture. The Germans have theirs. We have our food, right? How do you speak a, a, a love language to Italians? Food, right? You can fix any problem with it. Yeah, and you cut off my foot and you hit my car. Here, have pizza. Oh, thank you. We're good. Right? We're okay. Just exaggerating, right? Asking with action. So sometimes I'm praying for that. To God, I, I don't, I'm out of money. I've done what I've done, given what I need to do, paid my bill, gave my tithe, da, da. I'm out of money. Oh, I kept asking while I was looking for two-cent deposit bottles down Hollywood Boulevard, walking for several miles sometimes, asking and seeking. You don't have to apply that woodenly to your situation, but God says, ask and seek. Cooperate with the prayer. Ask and seek, seeking, and then knocking. That's persistence. Well, God must not hear me. He must be so busy. In fact, I'm not even going back to church anymore. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop praying because God doesn't hear me. Does that sound sincere or insincere? Is that slanderous to the nature of God? So when God is saying this, asking, seeking, and knocking, it helps us to measure something inside of ourselves called sincerity of our prayer, and it does that for God. Are you sincere in it? You see, that's how Jesus recalibrated this because so many things that get prayed for are superfluous or are wants. And once again, we can pray for some of those things. We can't blame them on God if we ask for things that are not His will. That's to start off in the asking in the first part. Is it His will? Is it my desires? Is it something that I can look at and say it's a genuine need? Because that's what God promises supply. He didn't say, I'll make you a millionaire, pray for millions of dollars to have it plopped down, buy one lottery ticket and you'll win. And I know I've heard the reverse tithe on that. God, if you let me win this $100 million, I'll give a 90% tithe to the church. I'll only keep $10 million. Well, pastor, would you take it if they gave $90 million? Thank you. The devil had it long enough. Right? So in this whole thing, I pray that as you've looked and allowed the Holy Spirit freedom in your life to change perhaps what we think is a need and a want and what's my desire and what's his desire, what's his will, that it changes us. We cooperate with God, but we show him our sincerity more than anything else. Is there anything worse than someone coming up to you Hey, hey, Larry, how you, how you doing? Um, that's insincere, isn't it? Do you like that as a person? No one does. What about the holy God? As pastors come forward right now, there's some important decisions need to be made. Because there may be some in this room saying, you know what, I, according to what the Word of God says, there's some things I need to change. I need to recalibrate some things because I've been putting in the wrong measurement, I need to put the right one in and recalibrate what I'm even asking for. God, forgive me. And I don't know what that is for you, but God may have spoken truth to you, and I trust His Holy Spirit, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He's already spoken to you and shown you something. Secondly, if you're looking for a church home, this is a Bible-believing church that believes 
that only Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross, a sacrifice for our sins, can save a person. His resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection, proving he was God, proving he had power over death and sin. We don't believe in a system. We believe in a Savior. We believe you receive eternal life as a gift, not by something anyone could ever earn. Then why do you live the Christian life? Out of thankfulness, gratefulness, and obedience for what God's already done for us. The saddest thing in the world is no one has to go to hell because God paid for the sins of the whole world. And yet some people try to earn their way there or find some other way to heaven. They may be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. Sincerity does not equate truth. God is truth. So today, if you haven't done that yet, we'd love to hear from you. If God spoke to you about your prayer life or about a a prayer request, we'd pray with you. You can pray alone up here. Make it an altar of dedication. It's a time of transparency. If you're looking for a new church home, love for you. Love for you to come forward as a candidate for membership. Even today, don't wait. I'm going to ask you to stand. Terry's here to lead us. Don't wait. Respond as God has spoken to your heart today. Here.